time around we're going to be looking at um, Anomalisa, which is a 2016 animated movie, stop-motion animation, uh, co-directed by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Did you see, first of all, did you see this at the cinema? No, no, I didn't. Yeah, when I was watching it, that was one of my quick reactions, almost from the outset, was that I'd wish I'd seen it on a bigger screen yeah. than the screen I have at home. Curzon Artificial Eye picked it up here, so I guess it would have been showing a lot of their cinemas, and I can't really blame the distribution that much, but no, I didn't get to see it in the cinema, and I, I wish I had as well. Yeah. Um, I, I picked it up on disc when it came out, because I, I knew that I really, really wanted to see it, and yeah, same as you, I kind of regretted not doing that. There's a few films, isn't there, that you see, and straight away you miss that big screen impression. So this is, is this the first time you've seen it recently or have you seen it yeah, before? Yeah, no, no, I hadn't seen it before. I watched it for this um, and I watched it <laughs> two days in a row. So I watched it and then, you know, just didn't make any notes, just kind of let it wash over me and then watched it again and made, you know, copious notes. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I feel like I could probably watch it again <laughs> and again and maybe a couple more times, you know, it's so detailed and yet kind of so effortless. It's a really clever piece of cinema. It kind of, it, ticks all the boxes doesn't it yeah i kind of watched it on disc um when it first came out like like the day it arrived eagerly watched oh, yeah, it and okay. really enjoyed it um and then kind of forgot about it ever since um it's always been yeah that was really good mm -hmm. um and then we sort of decided to do it for this and i did the same thing i just kind of put it on with a pen and paper um but i just kind of was spellbound for the whole thing That's and found really at good. the end i'd made no notes mm. so then i went to do some research and realized that not only did i need to watch it again to make some notes of my own that i needed to watch it again in the context of all the things i'd learned about the background of it and sure. everything and, and what it's about uh, so yeah, so then I watched it a third time. Yeah, that's it. You kind of have to get the, the first viewing out of the way, don't you? The s viewing where you don't know what's going to happen, you know, yeah. the surprises and, you know, the surprises in technique and character and all of these things that happen. You need to get that first viewing out of the way so you can go back and really kind of yeah. enjoy the uh, complexity of it. And I felt I had to go back and see some more Charlie Kaufman. Obviously, I've I've kept up with all of his films as they've come out. But his his output's been so sparse, you know, those seven years between Schenectady, New York and this, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, a further three years since this has come out, that I'd kind of, you know, remembered all his films very, very favourably, but not any significant detail about them. Yeah, yeah. So after this, I went back and watched Adaptation again and Schenectady, New York, the latter of which has gone in my mind from being... That was very, very good to being that's a legitimate masterpiece of cinema. <laughs> yeah, I haven't rewatched it. I put it on my Amazon watch list after watching this just to kind of catch up on it. Oh, it's phenomenal. Um, I think that the sort of surface and structural cleverness is what you get the first time around, but second time around it was just devastating. It was mm. really, really upsetting, especially towards the end. Anyway, back to this. Do you know much about the creation of the project you know the, the backstory on the sound play and yeah it started out as um, a short sound play which was uh, sort of commissioned by the composer carter burwell it was called theater of the new year uh, it, it showed in new york london and la it had the actors reading the lines on stage with an orchestra and foley artist so it was quite literally a sound play um there was initially two plays in the lineup, Hope Leaves the Theatre by Kaufman and Sawbones by the Coen brothers. And apparently scheduling conflicts meant that Sawbones was replaced by a new play, Anomalisa, which was written by a Francis Fragoli, which was a pseudonym for Kaufman, and it had the same cast as feature in the, in the movie. Yeah, I read something about them. Tom Noonan was in the middle. So Tom Noonan voices every other character in 
the play and in the film, uh, with the exception of David Thuellis and Jennifer Jason Lee's characters, and they were sat on opposite sides of the stage, and Tom Noonan was in the middle, so they were talking about the love scene halfway through, and they were making their kind of noises, and it's all bouncing uh, across the stage. It just sounds, you know, like a really interesting evening. You know, it sounds it sounds like really fun actually, just mm. to sort of sit there and watch it in that kind of state of your eyes are uh, giving you one thing, and your ears and your your mind are. Uh, doing something else completely different I think that's, that's quite fun um, yeah it's annoying that it um, I guess we wouldn't have seen this one in London would we because it's only LA there was the conflicts but it's annoying that this entire show completely passed me by because I'm somewhat <laughs> culturally disconnected um, I would have had the opportunity to see it um, a friend of Kaufman's was in the audience for the Anomalisa performance um, Dino Stamatopoulos who's a TV comedy writer and producer okay and he suggested to him that he turn it into something visual. He'd founded Starburn Studios, who do animation, including a show called Moral Oral, which is one of the shows that Duke Johnson animated. Oh, okay. So yeah, so between them they put together a Kickstarter, which raised about four hundred thousand uh, dollars to make a forty-minute short, and then additional funding was secured off the back of that to turn it into a feature. Duke Johnson, the animation director, and Kaufman made and edited an animatic. And then the actual stop motion animation shoot took you two years. There's a lot of stuff on the disc for this. There's a lot of little featurettes which are really, really useless because they're produced as if they're little promotional featurettes oh, with okay. uplifting music. Yeah. And Meet Mike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they literally last for about 30 seconds each. Um, but there's a really good Q&A uh, oh, shot okay. at the Curzon Soho, hmm. which answers a lot of questions about it. And I didn't realise or was kind of stunned about how sophisticated animation can be. I guess once you're working on something, pre-visualizing it in the computer, you can use that to create everything right down to the, you know, the performance aspects of the puppets. Because they use 3D printing to create the puppets. For it's these. so nice that that yeah. effect. You know, as you see frame by frame, the gentle shimmer across the skin yeah. is really nice, really disarming. I mean, you can see they they do kind of play down in the in the production stuff how much retouching and digital work there was there was done. But again, the fact that you can do that now, um, the fact that it's you just can a animate, clean up, isn't it? You know, it's not like yeah, it's exactly. a criticism. It's just cleaning up the. the and they they do make a point of saying that the animatic didn't actually dictate the performance. They just mm. used that for the structure of the film and for the length of shots and cut points. Did they record the voices first? Yes, they did. Like so a, they had that layered the animatic yeah. over the voices and then animated using the animatic as a guide. Yeah, but they didn't use the animatic because you can go as far as you want with an animatic in terms of pre-visualising. You can do it to actually choose the facial expressions that you want and the combinations. They didn't go that far. They said what they did was made a, a set range of expressions Oh, okay. Um, and printed those out and then just used those as your, your selection whilst you're actually hand animating. Mm -hmm. So it was properly stop motion animated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't kind of like just reproducing the animatic oh, I see. slavishly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It works, the technique. I think there's something, you know, like I said, the first time I just sank into the film and wasn't paying any attention to the craftsmanship behind mm -hmm. it, but there's a real pleasure watching it once with a slight detachment from the story and just enjoying the details of the animation like the the sets you know it's not like those big elaborate thunderbird sets or something like that you know to just to do a kind of hotel bar <laughs> you know that and it's not lit like um a traditional stop motion animation would be like isle of dogs or you know yeah those kind of movies it's it's really lit like a small independent feature film you know, yeah in this kind of budget range of sort of five to eight million you know it has that sort of softness of photography 
I think one of the most upsetting things about the fact that this film bombed and sank without a trace is is that it didn't lead on to more films like this. I mean, I like I like kind of you know splashy animation. I do like Your Isle of Dogs, and, yeah, yeah. and I loved Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, it's great. But that's kind of it's animated animals, isn't it? Yeah. Um, whereas what I liked about this was that it was just everyday stuff. Yeah, yeah. played out at the at the same pace of every but it's because it's animated it's got this strange it's got I wouldn't say magical but it's got this quality that keeps you interested yeah, it's, it's really yeah. intense I think yeah. especially because it's played so human you know that they don't make any kind of point of them being puppets with the exception of I think a, there's been a lot written about the lines around the face and his detachable jaw and mm. you know the kind of the puppetry elements of it but the fact that the puppets are so lifelike and you know human looking especially when you see them naked you know you see this kind of shape and dimples and you know it's a really interesting distinction between like the very human form of the bodies with the dimples and the sort of paunches and you know all, all, and scars and all of that kind of stuff with sort of very obvious puppetry of the faces i, I think it would have been fun to be at the theater performance to see the Foley artist at work as well. Yeah. I don't know if there's any clips of that on the Blu-ray, but no, I don't know if there's any recordings made of the. Um, apparently, there's some audio recordings made of some of the oh, plays, yeah, but okay. I don't think this one was recorded. Apparently, Kaufman was reluctant to adapt it at first because he thought a lot of the ambiguities of the play would be would be lost. It was it was originally written so that part of the experience of it would be seeing these sort of lines played out and these intimacies performed without any actual physical intimacy yeah, on stage. Yeah. Yeah, part of the strangeness of it being watching these performers sat on either side of the stage. So I guess, as anyone who's seen it knows, it's uh, performed by a cast of stop-motion puppets, all of whom, with the exception of the lead characters Michael and Lisa, who are played by David Thewlis and Jennifer Jason Leigh, um, all of them are made up of identical-looking and sounding puppet people with only slight variations of, of hair and, and dress. Yeah, it's really good. That um, It's a nice nice trick that you sort of, you get, by the time he leaves the airport, you've, you've sort of got it. And, you know, I think there's a really nice thing where he looks at his iPod and he puts on Joan, Dame Joan Bakewell and it's the same <laughs> voice going like, there's loads of little details like that, which I think, it's surprising because it's a film, you know, it can be quite melancholic, the lead character's, quite depressive a bit of a misanthrope and i think it still manages to keep some humor in there you sort of giggling mm. sometimes nervously sometimes you know just the slapstick of it as well i think it's it's a really nice balance did you see the background about the frigoli delusion i did yeah i read up on that just because uh, i liked there's kind of a gag in there that i liked with him uh, pronouncing the hotel name with his sort of northern English, like Fragoli, and then everyone else saying Fragoli. I thought that was a really nice uh, touch. But yeah, the, so the delusion is a belief that different people are in fact a single person who changes appearances. Like it's a sort of like a paranoid delusion, isn't it? Mm. And they're saying it's kind of uh, like a these delusional misidentification syndromes like schizophrenia or something that's uh, substance abuse or brain injury it's or lesions on the front of the brain that's how it kind of affects your perception so that perhaps he's suffering from... well i don't i think kaufman said it's, he's not supposed to be literally suffering from it it's just like a visual metaphor for yeah it's a representation how, of how he sees the world how disconnected he is from the world i'm sure you know and recognize tom noonan's voice I do. 
well, I know him from, from lots of things. Manhunter. Yeah, it's Thomas Dollarhide. Yeah. Um, and he's also um, fantastic in Snecky New York. Oh, yeah, okay. He's he's the actor who comes to play Philip Seymour Hoffman, Caden's character in Caden's play, which then requires another actor to play the Tom Noonan character who's playing Caden. That's right, that's right. Thing. He's also in, uh, he plays Kane in Robocop 2. Oh, yes. <laughs> Frank Miller's uh, Opus. Yeah, Frank Miller's haste. Opus Horribilis. Uh, yeah. I really like, I mean, I've already said this, but um, I find it quite disarming that it starts with a huge digital Paramount logo, really big and glossy, and it just, I feel like I was settling into like a Mission Impossible film. Um, and then it just kind of cuts to this black screen and I was fiddling with the volume on the TV because I wasn't sure if I'd missed something and then I heard these kind of whispers emerging from the black mm. and just these, you know, Tom Noonan's voice layered and layered and layered. It's a, mm. a very unsettling introduction. But I like that, you know, we can go through each shot or sequence in detail, but what I really like about the mastery of these opening five or ten minutes is that it kind of settles you into watching the film you know it slows your heart rate focuses your attention and you just you find the pace of the film and and you kind of obey it and mm. i think that's re that's a re really clever thing for a filmmaker to do is just to kind of settle your mind and your your soul into the the space that he's uh is crafted yeah yeah I'd, um and it, it kind of establishes your sound design setup as well because mm. it's quite an unsettling kind of drone underneath those voices which which puts you at ill at ease from the very beginning <laughs> Yeah, actually, you get to meet Michael Stone, don't you? Um... Yes. Yeah, first thing you see, obviously, is this kind of puppet head. And I think the first time you view it, there is kind of there's a slight disquiet about looking. You know, it's that thing about the uncanny valley and all those kind of different things that you get when you're looking at something that you know is artificial. Mm. And then they spend the next few minutes just kind of building up the reality of the character. There's, yeah, there's a really nice gag. Time. You know, maybe I'm racing ahead a bit but where the character that's sitting next to him on the plane says you know i'm sorry i grabbed your hand you know as they're taxiing on the runway he's like i'm sorry i grabbed your hand i get really nervous when i'm flying etc and he's like it's, it's okay it's fine it's fine he's like yeah you can let go now <laughs> <laughs> such a silly gag but it really works you know no but all this stuff on just like in a single scene on the plane it sets up everything kind of dramatically you know he's, he's takes a pill and then starts reading the letter from bella yeah, yeah. which automatically kind of is uncomfortable letter and it puts him in a tricky yeah. position but there is something in, about him taking the pill and reading a letter and you know the voice in his head it just makes him feel like a character who feels like a, a real person after a, a couple of really nice shots i mean throughout this i'm just going to be i'm just going to be rabbiting on about about how much it makes me want to see normal things done at his animation yeah, yeah. over and over again so it's just exquisitely a, crafted isn't it yeah know? It's it's not just that, it's the fact that you can show sort of mundane stuff and it has kind of like, I don't mean magical as in otherworldly, but it mm. just has... There's a beauty, isn't there? Yeah, there's a beauty to it that that, that just filming things, real things, figuratively can... Yeah, and miniaturised as well, yeah. but maximised photographically, you know, knowing that all of those clothes that they're wearing, all the texture and mm. the, the embroidery or whatever is all like micro as well, that somebody's sat and hand sewn that stuff, you know, mm. put it together and the way they shuffle around and they walk kind of they don't walk normally but you know they have all the characteristics of somebody that's 
you know, however they're feeling, you know, you can see it in the, in their body language. It's mm. sort of like a, a, a super enhanced performance or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all those shots, just just a handful of kind of throwaway shots going through the airport, going mm. on, on like a, is it Travelator? Yeah, yeah. Things. And um, walking through the airport to get a cab and stuff. It's just like, oh, this is the real world, but through slightly different lenses. Yeah, it did remind me, that airport scene reminded me ever so slightly of the end of Everything is Illuminated, you know, when Tobey Maguire gets back from uh, his travels and he realises that everybody's connected. I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, okay. And there's a taxi ride to the hotel. I mean, it seems odd going through this all scene by scene because it's all, it's, it's fairly seamless. I did notice watching it the third time that the movie has a really nice, clean three-act structure. Um, and this first act just kind of flows effortlessly yeah. from one thing to another. It doesn't feel like individual scenes. There's a really great bit with the taxi ride mm-hmm. with the stupid driver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stupid That's and irritating He's driver. an archetype, isn't he? Yeah. A global archetype. Um, and, and Michael clearly not wanting to talk. There's a really nice sequence where he says he likes, you know, England and all things English. You're from England, right? Yeah, I'm from England. How's the weather there now? Good. Well, I'm from there originally. I live here now. In Sin Sin City? You know, as I call it. Not here, the States. The States. I like that. Across the pond, the States, the trolley, cheerio, put another shrimp on the barbie. I like all that English stuff. <laughs> There's uh, some nice exchanges with the taxi driver that kind of set up some stuff later on. I mean, you as you're watching it, you kind of get the the giggles of uh, an awkward exchange between somebody that wants to talk and somebody that doesn't want to talk. But the taxi driver does talk about the the zoo, the Cincinnati Zoo, being zoo-sized, mm. and that you wouldn't need a whole day to go around it, and that you maybe only would need an hour to eat some Cincinnati chili. And then Michael asks him if there's a toy store. It's you know, a fairly innocuous question, but the taxi driver interprets it as something more lewd and is giving him like a nudge-nudge, wink-wink response. And, you know, although the dialogue serves to kind of illustrate the characters, all of those points recur later on as well. So that's how kind of sparse the writing is. I mm. think that's a really nice discipline that even things that feel throwaway still have are pertinent to what, what plays out later on. Mm. No, it's only this time watching it around that I noticed that the um, when you get um, a time lapse, mm-hmm. the sun coming up over yeah, the yeah, hotel, the, you get the, the sign for the, the zoo billboard. Saying, it's zoo size. Yeah, the billboard goes up, yeah. <laughs> and then later on, Lisa starts talking about the zoo, and that's part of the, the point where he starts to disengage from her as mm. well. So then we arrive at the um, Fréjolie Hotel. Fréjolie. <laughs> the really nice little touch with the um, receptionist who kind of stares into Michael's face throughout yeah. the whole booking yeah, process. Doesn't doesn't break his his glance, does it? I really liked, it's, it's just a tiny little aside, but it's kind of typical of how great the animation is. Just his, his kind of slight flinch when the um, receptionist at the hotel is just staring into his face as he's taking the booking. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of cut to him. He's kind of like a weird, kind of like, <laughs> sure, Whoops. uncomfortable flinch. I thought that was like a really perfect bit of animation. I listened, uh, the second time I watched it, I watched it with headphones on. Um, and as he's entering the hotel, lots of people are pointing and whispering, going, it's Michael Stone. That's Michael Stone. Yeah. I really like that, that mm. detail. So he is kind of, he is successful and, you know, because at this point we don't really know how successful he is. You know, he's written the the Bible for customer service, mm. and he's there to give a lecture 
and everybody in the hotel is there to attend his lecture yeah it feels like but without knowing that you could also you could also say it just kind of it feels like it's part of his paranoia mm, sure world around him if you wanted to if you wanted to look at it that way yeah but i think that's why we get those voices before we know who he is mm. and then you get something which i guess is i don't know if it would be easier or harder to do it's like a single take going from the lift from inside the lift through the hallway into his room and then into yeah, the bathroom a, to take a leak. Yeah, it's a funny kind of uh, trick to pull, isn't it, in an mm. animation which is essentially hundreds of shots put together to create the effect of a, a single uninterrupted take drifting mm. through her. It's very like De Palmery, isn't it? Yeah, you wonder if it's much more difficult or, or much easier because you can totally control the environment. Yeah, that's it. You can yeah. just build sets in, be- in between frames. And a little bit of forced perspective, it felt like, in the corridor as well, just to sort of bring that in a little bit mm. now, him taking a piss I think is that another one of those points where it's just breaking through the barrier of accepting that this puppet's a character it's human although he doesn't wash his hands I don't know maybe that was too hard to animate I, yeah I mean it's just one of the little details in, in the whole of this I guess next 10-15 minutes of him just hanging around the hotel room and doing the stuff that you do in a hotel which I guess would be slightly less interesting were it just live action filmed mm. but because it's animation it's it's quite novel to see these things yeah, played it. out as animation yeah it's brilliant observational writing as well just just the little nuances of how how Michael says things and how he responds to the blandness of the mm-hmm. people on the other end of the phone when he's ordering room service and stuff. Yeah, I think when we see the telephone, we see all those different options for ordering room service. Mm. And I think is this where we're starting to get an indication of either the you know the world that he inhabits in his mind that is triggering his condition and his detachment. You know, this idea that there's so much choice now. You know, with buying a phone, for example. You, you can literally spend weeks researching all the different phones just to get this pretty much essentially the same functionality <laughs> um, and the same here where he's ordering room service and, and the cho- the time that he takes to make the choice of which button to push, you know, is, is that something about how he's seeing the world? Mm. Or it could just be like a, a dig. At, at, there's, there's a lot of kind of subtle digs at how irritating hotel rooms are and hotel service just be like comedy dig at that yeah i guess yeah i just think there's something as as the movie's moving forwards there are clues as to why he is like he is and how he sees the world and how his position in the world has affected his detachment from it and i'm kind of conscious of looking for those as as we go through it yeah um one thing that did make me almost like made me laugh out loud it made me almost applaud was um the view from the hotel window which is exactly like the view from every hotel window I've ever seen whenever I've stayed in America. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just that kind of nondescript jumble of, of nondescript buildings. Buildings and people, yeah. It's nothing remotely picturesque whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Just cityscape, isn't it? Yeah. Generic Land cityscape. It's yeah. very good. And then he phones home. Yep. And again, I, get, I got a great laugh from the sun. So if, did you buy me something, Daddy? Did you buy me something? That's the first thing, isn't it? That kind of... <laughs> Yeah, Gra- grasping sun dialogue. Uh, but I like it that he didn't want to speak to. He was like, "Don't put him on, don't put him on." She's <laughs> like, "Go get Henry." I say she, you know. Again, this is Tom Noonan's voice, but you sort of you're starting to buy into this mm. separation between the the characters. And I think praise to Tom Noonan for being able to make a distinction between all of those yeah, characters. Yeah, he's not. He's like not put, hundred. He's characters. not putting on any voices, but it's just like raising the cadence every <laughs> yeah, now and then. It. Yeah, he's not going. Oh, let me get it for you. <laughs> he's just literally doing Tom Noonan's voice with a yeah slightly different pitch. Yeah, it's really good. 
and the fact that he does the mother and the son's voice you know it's just it's it's brilliant it's, mm-hmm. it's a real pleasure but yeah, he doesn't want to speak to his son he's like don't put him on you know, like he can't be bothered to speak to him and then he has to switch into gear with that hello slugger like the responsibility of being a father he'd mm-hmm. rather just kind of brush that aside and not have to deal with it in in his hotel room yeah and there's kind of you know very brief brief suggestions that things aren't entirely entirely happy at home either just in the tone of the conversation with his wife she makes a joke about mike thrashing around in bed and he'll be in the hotel room by himself so he can just thrash around as much as he likes but instead of him taking that as a joke he really bristles at the criticism part of that is to do with the fact that his thrashing about in bed is like a, a physical externalization of his his subconscious as it's working through the dream state to try and resolve all of these issues that he that he has with his place in the world and i think somehow the physical manifestation of that process leaves him a little bit vulnerable so for her to just kind of make a joke about it and yeah you know just say oh you're thrashing about oh, like a madman whereas in fact he's dealing with all of his internal trauma and also it's stuff that he doesn't want to talk about with anybody else he doesn't you know seem able to articulate it what else i mean how's your room it's you know it's a room it's nice i guess big bed that's good you can thrash about all you like okay donna it's not that i like it it's restlessness Uh, okay okay i'm sorry you know the clues are already there we've had him reading the breakup letter from a lost love who is his kind of next phone call i think yeah he calls bella um it's quite interesting that he doesn't recognize her voice i wonder if that was part of his perception of the world you yeah know, he, it's he, kind he, of symptomatic of his delusion isn't it yeah. he's, he's kind of lost the ability to distinguish people um, so yeah yeah, it's quite. Funny. I didn't recognise your voice. He says, but obviously everybody's got the same voice. It's it kind of works on. It's sort of bitter and like really amusing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Again, I've got a note here about Tom Noonan's performance as Bella. I thought it was really quite affecting. Again, yeah. considering it's Tom Noonan just talking like exactly. Tom Noonan. Exactly. Yeah. It's very very good. It's a good character. It seems like they had a proper relationship. It wasn't just a, a fling. When he speaks to her on the phone, he says, "Oh." how long has it been I don't know 10 years and she's like no it's been 11 mm. and she's very precise well just the w- wording of their letter suggests that yeah it was going on for more than one night yeah, exactly. it? It, was, it was I kind of get the feeling it's like an, an intense month long affair or something yeah it was something deep and you know she talks about how deep the connection was and when we see her you know a decade later it's still pretty pretty raw it's still pretty on mm. the surface he's just talking about <laughs> that there's something wrong with him that everything's boring and that he's kind of just he's he's lost as well and he's hoping that reconnecting with her will somehow reignite some, a, a some spark he feels, life, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of died inside of him there's uh there's so many lovely details in this but what, one of the things that she says on the phone was that she'd fallen over and bashed her face on a concrete bench and lost a tooth at the front <laughs> and for him not to look at her fake tooth and then as you're looking at the puppet you're looking at it trying to see the fake tooth <laughs> and it's just popping out under her lip you know it's a really nice like detail that's why i was saying like to see it on the cinema to just kind of look for that false tooth mm. would have been really nice to see it that big i think um when they go for a drink i think it's the it's this is the first time that i've obviously apart from michael that that really really appreciated how careful the um styling is for the puppets you know for bella's puppet she has bad hair and you know kind mm-hmm. of not very nice jumper and you think you've kind of nailed nailed this kind of slightly yeah, yeah. 
slightly forlorn character just just with those two things and especially since the face you know apart from the tooth the, the, the face is just identical to mm. everyone around them it's just it's just remarkable the job yeah they do. and it, again you know we've already mentioned it but it's in in tom nuna's performance of her as well you mm. know she's f- fully realized as a character even though she has the same face and voice as everyone else it's yeah. really clever it's interesting in the conversation with bella i think it's it's where you, your doubts about michael's character start to creep in because okay on on sort of the grand scale he's trying to reignite his passion about life because he's bored but at the same time he is he is just trying to get some sex yeah to to kind of keep things and he's as oblivious now as he was a decade ago of the effect that his actions have had on her yeah you know and the weight that she's had to carry around because of him just he's so disappearing in the middle yeah he's so self-absorbed in his own depression that he doesn't really understand his actions and how yeah, they affect it. other people I think yeah she's pressing him isn't she like why did you go why did you leave and he's just like I've got psych- psychological problems <laughs> I mean everything sounds funny coming out of his uh, his mouth and the animation on her face at this point is it's incredible like she's so expressive and like very kind of liquid in her performance you know her eyebrows are going and her forehead is like crunching and releasing and you can see like she's trying to process all yeah, of these and kind emotions of, you know it's the kind of defensive body language as well she's kind of held back and yeah. like holding herself and she and yeah um so after his disastrous drink with bella he goes for a walk trying to find the toy shop that the taxi driver recommended to him it's nice seeing him stagger down the road a bit do you know what it reminded me of was the scenes of tom cruise walking in eyes wide shut where you sort of you get the uh the nice tracking shots yeah the, so I, you know profile tracking shot in a big city and mm. you know just to see the space that he's inhabiting and it had that sort of authenticity about it even though it, again you know i don't know how many times we should keep saying it's puppets <laughs> and you know handmade miniature sets but mm. yeah it's just it's fantastic and then when he goes into the shop there's that really nice sort of unsteady point of view shot yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah. staggering up there yeah, it's great yeah, he's had a few drinks you know he's losing focus He's just blundered into a sex shop instead of a toy shop. And in trying to find um, a toy for his son, he sees this um, antique Japanese sex toy on the shelf. Yeah, it's a beautiful puppet, the uh, Japanese automaton that he sees at the back of the sex shop. Mm. We don't know what, what becomes of it until the very end of the film, but it's definitely one of those moments where you have an animated character looking at a mechanical character mm. within the internal logic of of their world it's just a really nice little moment of visual poetry if nothing else but it actually pays off really nicely at the end let me cut back to the hotel room um you've got some really nice i mentioned it before i really like the comedy stuff with the temperature in the shower (laughs) yeah yeah it's Um, really funny but then you know we go straight from that within within the same shot you go straight from that to kind of again it's that puppet depiction of nudity you know with a, a correctly swinging penis as he gets out of the, <laughs> the testicles <shower>. and you know <laughs> it's, it's quite a surprise that because you're watching him in the shower and it's a long shot and you get all the kind of jokes of him trying to hit the temperature and get it right mm. and then he's done and he steps out of the shower and you're watching it waiting for the cut and it just doesn't come <laughs> and then he steps out and he's full frontal naked and you're like wow okay that's that's interesting but then that sort of very human scene with him struggling to hit the temperature and then the very human depiction of his body is followed almost immediately by him wiggling his jaw. Yeah, glitching. And, yeah, that's yeah. it. And you start to get this kind of breakdown. You know, the film could have gone in a completely different Spider-Verse direction at this point. Some of the sound design, it 
gets quite ominous at this point, and it has in in previous points in the film, and it kind of it suggests that you might be watching, you know, something that's not quite, you know, in this world, not in the real world, and it kind of skirts that line a bit. Um, and I I felt a little bit disappointed with that. I felt the film didn't need it. I'll I'll come to it a bit more later on. I, I guess it works within the context of the film because this is the point where he first hears Lisa's voice in the corridor. Yeah, yeah, that's it. How do you think those those two things are supposed to coexist? The fact that it, you know, it, it's Charlie Kaufman, and a lot of his scripts do have a science fiction element. Yeah, yeah, you know, doorways into uh, yeah, into you know, Malkovich's mind and those kind of things. So you expect that kind of playing with reality and and layering of reality. Yeah, but we're already two or three layers removed from reality in something that feels intensely real. So I think he's already kind of tricked us at one point, and I think that it's maybe. You know, maybe at this point in the narrative, it's just something to give us a little shock to jar us in, into distrusting what we're what we're seeing. Mm. Maybe also it's as simple as being a representation of Michael's state of mind. You know that he is just about to fall apart, mm. can't hold it together any longer. So at this point, Michael hears Lisa's voice in the corridor. Um, and hurriedly gets dressed. Um, <laughs> so funny watching a puppet I'd, rushing to put his clothes on. But it did it did make me feel as kind of sweaty and un- uncomfortable mm. as you would watching a live action person doing yeah, that. Yeah, you know, watching a watching a real person do that. Um, It'd have been played so much differently though, I think, because it's you're so vulnerable, aren't you? Naked, trying to get your trousers on. Yeah. And it's one of those things I always get like a foot caught in my pants and I, it does really fucking wind me up you know I feel like there's some conspiracy between my underwear drawer and my place in the world and it sort of it catch, captured that brilliantly I've really empathised with him like he was just desperate to get out of the room and thwarted by his own clothes <laughs> I always I, I can't get dressed too quickly I always feel deeply uncomfortable for a long time if I'm not dressing at the appropriate pace oh, yeah, okay. and if you have, have like a metronome going well no especially if you just go out of the shower Sock I have to, I have to cool down pro- <laughs> I have to cool down properly before I can put my clothes on otherwise I'll just continue sweating into my clothes and that is wrong <laughs> so just watching this I thought it was it was quite pleasing that even watching a, a, a puppet do it mm. made me feel very uncomfortable yeah, yeah. Um, so he goes herring down, down the corridor uh, knocking on different doors to try and find the voice that turns out to be Lisa. A lot of kind of very mildly amusing. Yeah, that's it. Responses. You know, you kind of don't want to spoil everything, but you know, there's just every every door that he opens, there's something wry about it. It's, mm. it's just just a pleasure to watch. And then he eventually finds the right door, um, which is Lisa and Emily's door. Before we start talking about Lisa, I have to say how much I fancied the Emily puppet. Yeah, I know, it's really clever. It's really seductive. There's something about her eyes and the way she sort of looks and, you know, there's definitely something sexual about her. Yeah, it's just kind of like, for a puppet, to exude sexual availability. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. It's weird. Yeah, so, uh, and I felt that the Lisa character initially, for the first few scenes, felt a little bit overplayed for me. Yeah, yeah. A little bit caricatured, but I think it's a grower and once you settle into it. Yeah, but there's something about that, I think, that because I, as I was watching it the first time, I was like, "Oh, it's a shame she's like so vulnerable." And but I think that's the type of woman that he's targeting. Yes, you know, he's he is a bit of a predator. We've seen that already. Yeah, with Bella. So for him to hear that voice, it, it's because he's able to target and seduce yeah, her. Yeah, because he like, is a pricked up at that. At yeah, that. that's it. You know, it's like a, a tiger chasing a wounded <laughs> deer. You know, it's, there's not much of a 
a challenge there for him, especially because he is the legendary Michael Stone. Mm. It's an easy win for him. So he um, decided to go for a drink. It's worth noting he does actually play on his reputation and how much they idolise him in order to get them to come for a yeah, drink. Yeah, I mean, and... they're starstruck by him, aren't they? Can I take you two beautiful ladies for a drink? <laughs> it's brilliant how dry his voice... Because you can imagine reading the book as, as an American... Mm you would read it with an American voice in your mind. So, you know, this idea that he just speaks with this dry northern accent is really good. And so they, the three of them go for a drink. I thought what was really clever in this... Um... Oh, but wait, I'm going to jump I'm going to jump in on you, just yeah, because okay. it's got one of my favourite little throwaway gags when the waitress comes over to the table and just says, hello again. Yes. <laughs> to him, I think that's brilliant. I thought the waitress was great. Yeah, She's yeah. absolute no-nonsense. It's kind of, well, it's kind of the waitress that you would like to meet. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to rephrase that. The kind of waitress that I would prefer to be served by. Efficient yeah. and, and brutal. <laughs> yeah, efficient, brutal, with character, but not, yeah, not yeah. trespassing on my privacy. Yeah, exactly. So I thought what was really clever with the drink with Lisa and Emily is um, one of the things that's described in, let's say, the audio play is that Lisa is disfigured, but you never see it. Oh, I see. So, you, you know, you're not sure as to the extent of it or you know but um it's actually in introduced in this scene before it's talked about so you get to see her disfigurement she's kind of hiding it with her hair yeah that's it there's something around her temple isn't there yeah, like around a, a little burn or eyes, sort, of, yeah. sort of scar or something um but the fact that it's kind of brought up visually before it's brought up in mm. conversation i thought was quite clever yeah and there are, there are a couple of like tiny clues to her backstory of how that happened something maybe to do with a, yeah. an, a long ago ex and when he's trying to be all tender about it she pushes away and mm. is pretty much out the door until he pulls her back next we see them drunk in the elevator going back up to their floor they have the weird sort of drunk people conversation don't they talking about mm. buttons and nonsense and and emily discreetly kind of moving in on Michael canoodling as she's <laughs> wrapping her arms around his arm and yeah. putting her head on his shoulder and yeah they say goodbye in the hallway and then he kind of summons up the courage to ask Lisa to his room and Emily's kind of disappointed but you mm. know puts a brave face on it yeah and but Lisa keeps saying are you sure you don't mean Emily because everybody fancies Emily you know mm. and she's really insecure about about that I had a note that Emily says he's gorgeous when Lisa agrees to go to his room, which really made me laugh. And then as she's walking, she face plants, doesn't she? She walks and trips over her own feet and goes face down in the corridor. Yeah. And I think, again, it's a good sort of slapstick moment. You know, she's drunk, etc. But she does it later on as well. And I think there's something about just starting to hint that all of those quirks that people have when you meet them and you're, and you're drunk and you're, you know, in pursuit and then the next day all of that all of those well, all, really all, annoying I mean, yeah. all of those things that seem charming through yeah. what we call beer goggles yeah yeah that's are, are less charming afterwards mm. i wondered if it was um i'm possibly reading too much into it but you've got lisa kind of tripping over and being kind of clumsy and, and vulnerable and injuring herself and in the same way that bella talks about and she she talks about having fallen over and broken a tooth and that sort of yeah, thing. It's yeah. just this again. It's the same sort of character, isn't it? It's yeah, kind of clumsy. That's his kind of um, his, his prey, type. isn't it? His yeah. type. Um, and then you have the I guess the core of the film really is the lengthy section with Michael and Lisa in his hotel room. Um, so I've got a note about them back at his hotel room. Michael's behaviour makes it clear he's done this before. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, he has kind of a load of rehearsed. It feels like. He has some lines, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. He's kind of in, in the pattern now. 
yeah, whilst whilst Michael's got um he's got his chat up binds and he's watching her very closely, she's revealing even more vulnerability. She's so and, open, isn't she? And just yeah. trying trying to just like present herself as as realistically yeah, as possible un- to him. Yeah, as that's possible. it. But you know, she's going into you know how her previous boyfriend of eight years ago was a man who was about sixty and thought she was he was married. Target. Yeah, that's it. It's um. Is I mean, all this, all this is the stuff that kind of deepens the character and makes it yeah. less of a stereotype. But I think you know she's obviously like vulnerable and is has and is being preyed upon, but she's also like positive and trying to see the good in the world and yeah, you know, trying it's to make the best of each untainted situation. Untainted by you know, whereas he's kind of just seems to be carrying this weight of his his Cynicism, experience. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And she's kind of the counterpoint to that. We have the drunken rendition of the Cindy Lauper song, which I thought was unbearably sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Uh, you know what? I've heard that song like loads of times. I remember it being in the charts, mm. uh, and I don't think I've ever like really paid attention to the lyrics and, until I saw, really? you know, Lisa puppet in a film sing them, and just I was really touched by it. Yeah, yeah. and again another great gag where he thinks she's finished, and she just kind of picks up the uh, the back part of the song. It's a godsend that they apparently it was supposed to be. What's that horrible song from Titanic? Oh, my heart will go on. It was originally supposed to be that song, but they couldn't get the rights. Oh yeah, yeah, is, that's that's a nice switch. I like um, I've always liked that Cindy Lauper song. I was a bit stunned to find that I don't have it in my iTunes anywhere. <laughs> I, you know, I've I bet never, you do now. Don't never you? gone out. No, I've <laughs> never gone out and bought it, but I've always liked it whenever it's come on. Oh yeah, okay. Even though it's like desperately uncool. Mm. You probably had it on. Now that's what I call music three. <laughs> It actually probably is on that like three or four. It's somewhere around there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I've always liked it. It's always like splashing cold water on your face whenever you hear it. It's quite refreshing, <laughs> quite brassy. Yeah, and she kind of drifts from from singing this this song into into a kind of sleepy sort of drunken reverie, mm-hmm. which is really lovely. They're sort of thanking each other, aren't they? And mm. you know, it's really soft. It's like, and he, you know, he's sort of he's crying at this point as well, isn't he? You know, it's. it's Obviously, he's drunk, so it's yeah. And whilst you know, in defence of the sexual predator, whilst he is kind of preying on her, he is also actually finding something of of joy and worth in his mm. in his miserable world. Yeah, yeah. There is that to be said for him. So the sex scene is is actually played quite straight, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the joys of this is that you're watching something that films in a wide, with the occasional close up, um, would be quite mundane. Yeah. But just watching it played by puppets, it's again, it's sort of captivating at first because you're like okay yeah they've, d- they've done nudity they're going to do this okay they're going to do the full uh, full <laughs> sex scene and then you just sort of you're just kind of watching it and somehow you get the intimacy you get this tragedy mm-hmm. the you know they're desperate for a connection the fact that they're disconnected from both of their own respective lives I, I don't know it just it kind of gives so much from a scene of two puppets having sex mm. I was um, disgusted in the way that I'm disgusted watching human beings do it as well when he more automatically lights up after sex oh yeah I think it's it's odd since I mean you know since the smoking ban in a lot of countries I find myself watching films where people smoke and just wondering how bad their clothes smell <laughs> yeah, yeah and when somebody books into a smoking room in a hotel you think oh, I wonder how bad that smells yeah. in that room it's set in like 2006 or something isn't it because I think wasn't Bella's letter like nineteen ninety five or six or something, and that was eleven years ago. You got a George W. Bush photo. That's on right. The administrator's <laughs> wall. Yeah, and he does rant about the Iraq War at some point as well, doesn't yeah. he? 
Yeah, yeah and the president being a war criminal. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. So we go from the sex scene into the dream sequence mm-hmm. in the film. I am ambivalent about this whole sequence, actually. If you wanted to be a bit smug about it, you could call it the Charlie Kaufman scene in yeah, capital right. letters. Yeah, yeah. And I felt that this was something that was written into it in order to make it more like a Charlie Kaufman movie because the film doesn't need it. I mean, I know it's obviously it's just a dream sequence, but it gives it that explicitly science fiction feel that you would come to, quote, expect from his movies. And I I felt a little bit disappointed. I remember the first time I watched it, I felt as, oh, so after all, kind of like the beauty of this everyday stuff, Mm -hmm. um, we're going into this, are we? We're doing this. And I was very relieved it was a dream sequence. But yeah, at the same it. time, I, I just don't think we need it. No, you, yeah, you're right. You could you could do without it. But it does give us a very clear indication of the terror of Michael's subconscious. You know, mm. this idea that everybody loves him and wants a piece of him and he's got nothing to give. And, yeah, I just think it's it's saying a lot about his state of mind. And it is still still funny, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's really good. It's it's you know it's funny and it's scary and it's and it's weird. Yes, the manager that he has to go and see when he's called down on the uh, hotel telephone has some uh, leprechaun fish. <laughs> he says, "Look at their Irish faces." Just, and yeah, and that's, just that's sort of madness, isn't it? Inexplicably, he gets on a treadmill in the middle of conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, which you don't really notice as strange at the time because yeah. you're so drawn into it all. All those kind of quirks. It's like. Kaufman's restrained up to this point and after this point by the discipline of the narrative so here he's just like put all of his uh, yeah this is all my surreal <laughs> bureaucracy yeah. nightmare stuff yeah exactly in one condensed dose yeah anyway that's that was my gripe with it and I guess with the with the Japanese sex doll as well I felt you know it doesn't sink the film for me I just I just felt that as the, the simpler aspects of the film would support it anyway without any of the weirdness. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you could definitely have got away with just playing it straight. You know, it's straight. already super complicated, tons mm. to kind of analyse on each level. So, Oddly enough, having just complained that I don't really, I feel this dream sequence doesn't fit in, um, I went back and watched two Charlie Kaufman movies again after this one. I watched Schenectady, New York which I loved. And I went back and watched Adaptation, which I hadn't seen since it first came out. Yeah, I swear the cinema, I haven't seen it since. I did not enjoy that at all at the oh, time. Okay. And I didn't enjoy it this time around either. Oh, okay. And I thought that I would, I would like it more because it's the least fantastic of his movies. It doesn't mm. have any science fiction elements. I mean, it has, you know, Nicolas Cage's twin brothers, but there's mm. no science fiction, no like fantasy elements to it whatsoever. And I found that I still really didn't enjoy it. Okay. Like I was, I was amused by it, and I was enjoying the way that the script kind of references itself throughout, and all the things that he was talking about happening in the script or shouldn't happen in the script were happening in the film. Mm. But at the same time, I didn't enjoy it very much, which is kind of contrary to what I've said about this one. <laughs> I'm hoping this one would be more mundane and down to earth, mm-hmm. and criticizing it for having a fantastic dream sequence in the middle. Yeah. Well, like the music in the, the dream sequence for like it's where we get our big flourishes maybe maybe mm. it was Carter Burwell's insistence <laughs> that there was something uh, some big flourish of action and adventure you know they're being pursued aren't they and mm. all the uh, other people in the hotel are telling him not to be with Lisa don't be with Lisa she wakes him she, she sort of pulls him out of the dream and says that he was thrashing around which we've heard his kind of wife criticise him for. And when he's apologising, she says that it's okay, she liked it because there was something intimate about him 
elbowing her in the face during the this it's like she's forget she's quick to forgive you know to see the best in people yeah but despite that they have breakfast together they order room service and have breakfast and plan the day and the inevitable happens <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean as an aside like this scene is one of the sort of most exquisitely animated mm. and lit as well <laughs> yeah yeah you know just looking at the detail of like scrambled eggs you know it's sort of, it, i was definitely like humbled by the, <laughs> by the craftsmanship on display here yeah and the gorgeous sort of bright early sunshine mm-hmm. but yeah I, I remember watching this the first time and i i kind of saw this gradual switch over coming yeah yeah um just at the beginning of the scene that oh it's gonna happen it's gonna mm-hmm. happen and yeah but I found all the details of his impatience and disappointment particularly pointed and, and embarrassing because you know, we've all done that, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. With, even with, you know, not to say that the person you're doing it with is fading from your life and is losing their charm for you, but we've all kind of picked holes in people's behaviour. Yeah, that's we're... it, yeah, of course. It's, yeah. it's an easy kind of default setting, you know, it takes so much more will to stay conscious of the respect and love that you need and the tenderness and uh, to treat another person as themselves and not an extension of your own kind of neurosis Awareness, which is what he yeah. does yeah he just like, exactly. drags her into his bullshit yeah yeah he's complaining about her like clinking the clinking fork clinking the fork on her teeth which yeah. is <laughs> and then she's talking with her mouth full and then he asks her a question and then she won't answer it because she's still chewing mm. you know it's do all those little traps that he's starting to lay for her and himself and without without even a second thought he's just kind of drifting back into himself now that he's mm. had what he wanted and and she talks about going to the zoo which is where that nice line from the earlier scene and the billboard all pay off because like that's the third time he's heard somebody say that the zoo is zoo sized <laughs> and you know she's just kind of blending in back into the background for him He's talking about leaving his wife and she's offering him advice on how to leave his wife you know once she eventually accepts that he's seems like he's genuinely wants to make this big decision and then he's like you know you're being a bit controlling being aren't a bit, you a bit controlling don't you think yeah. <laughs> it's really funny a bit awkward and horrible at the same but time. it is it's horrible it's just just you know you realize that he's so quick to revert back to form and to mm. this horrible sort of lack of self-awareness mm. and just kind of blithely compassion there's no compassion is there no you know, to talk to other people like that well the thing the thing as well though is i mean whilst we're kind of loathing his behaviour, he is also desperately upset and disappointed by what's happening to him. Mm. And by the fact that, you know, he doesn't realise that it's all of his own doing, but he's upset and disappointed by the fact that he's losing that connection mm. that he had. And it upsets him so much that his his big motivational speech that he's booked in to do kind yeah, of yeah. falls apart completely. Yeah, yeah. Fell apart a little bit too much, I felt. Yeah, yeah, sort of the weird asides, you know, where he's talking about the Iraq war and... And he's sort of goose-stepping up and down <laughs> down the stages. Sort of gets a bit Monty Python, doesn't it? Quite extreme. Yeah, and I felt it didn't really need that breakdown. I felt he could be a, a little unnerved and stuff, but I didn't think it needed a, a full-on breakdown. I think he would have been subsumed within himself enough for it not to, to hurt him that much. But then do you think what they're saying is maybe that him in as a kind of guru, capitalist guru, you know, that by living so deep in this world you know it's not like he he just skirts on the side of the kind of capitalist condition he's he's in the middle very of much instrumental in forward, yeah. yeah exactly that this is his kind of 
his just desserts almost that he is disconnected from the real world because he's part of the capitalist machine and mm. you know he doesn't deserve the love and attention of you know the rest of us and by being part of this corporate monster eventually his soul is going to fragment yeah, and, and be, crushed and be crushed and the rest of us will watch it happen it, it doesn't happen in the breakfast uh, scene but yeah, when yeah. you cut to Lisa she's got the, the face audience, she's, she? got, she's got the replicant face yeah, isn't yeah, she yeah but she's still got a tear in her eye you can yeah. tell it's her which is really clever yeah it's a really nice somebody he just, when he's talking about the Iraq war somebody's like save our troops you know you just hear it in, <laughs> in the background with like, Tom Noonan's voice again it's just a really like clever loads of clever details so there's a bit of a, an ellipsis here we don't have any big sort of awkward farewell scenes or anything i think the implication is that michael's just packed and left yeah, yeah. in a hurry you can imagine um, it he returns home to his his wife and son um who have brought around a load of friends and family for surprise, surprise party yeah. all That's these a, people none of whom he recognizes yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. he keeps saying who are you <laughs> Yeah, I guess he's just... <laughs> they make him jump, don't they, with the surprise? It's just one of those really funny, like awful moments with the surprise, and he's like, "Jesus Christ!" <laughs> and his son comes bounding into the room, says, "What did you get me, Daddy? What did you get me?" What's the this grasping son? And the um, Japanese sex toy starts to come to life towards the end of the scene. Yeah, there's a thing where his wife says, "What well, you know? What's that coming out of it? Is it is that semen?" And he's just shrugging, isn't he? Like, oh, I don't know. When I was doing some background on this and reading reviews and how it was received, I read this really strange analysis of this in a in a major magazine or paper. I wish I'd kept the link, mm-hmm. where somebody thought that the Japanese sex toy was key to understanding the film and that the semen leaking from it at the end was Michael's and that he'd had sex with it. Beyond being kind of, what? I didn't really take it in. I wish I still had that link. Yeah, I think I might have seen that. Um, maybe it was Sight and Sound... I think it was Sight and Sound. It was, New York it was Times. American. Yeah. New York Times. Yeah, I saw that, and they were saying that maybe um, Lisa was a figment of his imagination, and that he just basically went back to his hotel room with the sex toy. And but they were they were really putting that front and center as their theory about the film. Well, I mean, there's something. It's not like um, it's not like in a live action movie where maybe a, a spontaneous decision by the art director puts something into frame that you know is yeah. maybe accidental or accidentally leading the audience to a conclusion because this is so meticulously crafted that all of that is there for a reason mm-hmm. so i think it you know you're, you are supposed to scrutinize it and try and draw a conclusion from why an antique sex toy that's obviously been on a shelf for a long time is suddenly leaking semen mm-hmm. when he brings it home well i don't think it's supposed to be actual actual semen i always thought it was just like a liquid that it that it leaks as part of its function. Mm, yeah, maybe. So we leave Michael at home, fully sinking into his despondency again. Perhaps even worse off than he was at the beginning of the film. Yeah, he's just uh, his kid isn't interested in the semen leaking sex toy. No, he goes out to play, and his wife, you know, she does. There's a really tender moment where she's like, you know, we we do love you. She can see that there's something wrong with him. She's like, we do love you. We all do. And he's just like, oh, thanks a lot. For but um, we do get a lovely moment which actually takes us outside of, of Michael's world at the end of the film mm. when we get um, Lisa's letter and I kind of get the feeling that this is filmed from from an exterior. Kind of, you know, We've moved outside of Michael's. Oh, yeah, because we see Emily. See, Emily has her own face. And she's got her own face on, yeah. Mm. yeah. Do, do you like her more with her own face? or um, A little less, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we've kind of stepped outside of his delusion. Mm. And get their point of view, which is, and it's nice that Lisa's 
it's positive, isn't it? She's, she is herself. She's found the best. Well, in it. and she's also survived her encounter with Michael. She's mm. not like Bella, who's you know still carrying the the weight of that. That's the end, right? The, that's, that's the last shot. Is that's the Lisa end. Lisa and Bella driving off. We hear um, it's a kind of a footnote, but when the Japanese sex toy sings its song, we hear another voice. That's the only other time we have a different voice. It's not Tom Noonan singing the uh, song in Japanese. Mm. That's true. I'm feeling even even though I've done a fair bit of research for this, uh, there's a, a big chunk of research that I've missed. <laughs> yeah. have to do, to do with Japanese sex that, stories. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll be googling that for the next few hours. Yeah. Um, there's a nice little sound design note which I didn't notice until it's pointed out in this Q and A. Um, at the end of the film, after the music plays, there's a gradual kind of murmur of Tom Noonan crowd voices. Yeah, yeah. Rising up as a, very much like as it was pointed out, um, like like the voices that you get in a cinema as everyone's getting up to Yeah, me. yeah, that's it. Um, I thought that was a lovely little touch. You know, there's a few films that I think once once they're done, the titles are rolling and it's finished, you just kind of sit up and go, what was that about? I mean, <laughs> you know, have you seen Enemy, the Dennis Villeneuve? Yeah. Yeah, so for me that was one of those where I was just like, wow, I like it. I'm not sure if I've got it. What was that about? And I kind of do the research and then look at it again and this film is definitely like that for me as well you know i felt very satisfied when it finished but i wanted to look deeper into why it was made and what it was about Mm. what's your kind of takeaway what did you think it was about after you'd seen it the first time before doing too much research i honestly took a very superficial view of it the first time i watched it because it was just for me it was already bracketed as a charlie kaufman movie sure so i was just seeing it as a charlie kaufman movie with you know um and it was more interesting again because it, it was animated um, I thoroughly enjoyed it and then put it on the shelf and then you know hadn't come back to it until this it was only you know doing some research and thinking about it a bit harder that you kind of see a, a, a bit more of the depth of it I mean I kind of view it the same way as you um, I'm, I'm still kind of bitterly disappointed that this hasn't led on to a second career for Kaufman mm-hmm. in the same way that the animated movies have for Wes Anderson yeah they're a nice kind of parallel aren't they yeah I mean the great thing about these animated movies for each director is that they're very much of a piece with all all of their other work. Mm-hmm. It's all the same stuff, but it's just a different visual medium. And I really would have hoped to see more kind of it, not just Charlie Kaufman movies, but more movies in this in this style. Yeah, yeah. Um, or more animated movies about real life. As there's another universe for me where this is this is a big hit, a big indie hit, and leads to more stuff like this. Because it's fa- you know it's fairly low budget and you can make it and put it out there, but it's even with a low budget, it seems it couldn't make its money back. So yeah, it's really frustrating. I think there's kind of tons of reviews about it. It's yeah, it was like a, it was a film that lots of people talk about, and still I think online there is a sort of a, a small but intense fan base for it, and people spreading the word. You know, and I think yeah, it, it's kind of important to kind but, of uh, even at the time it was it was like blanket rave reviews it mm. was the, apparently it was the Guardian's film of the year oh really yeah there's an interview with Kaufman they published like you know the following year talking about it and saying you know it was our film of the year we, mm-hmm. we've and it still didn't make an impression it's um, yeah it's desperately disappointing it's a tragedy isn't it yeah absolutely is um, it it's, might be worth bringing up at this point the um disparity between how the film was marketed and what the film actually is did you see the trailer at all no i didn't actually it's quite something it's um 
It's got a big euphoric track in the background, mm-hmm. um, an Cold instrumental. Or something. Uh, it's, uh, how do you mean? Is it Likey Lee? Oh yeah, okay. One of those sorts of tracks. It could, you know it could be Polyphonic Spree or Coldplay yeah, yeah, or yeah. Flaming Lips or someone like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those big tracks, and it uses chunks of his motivational speech as if it was to be taken seriously oh, okay. about finding. You know, everybody has a soul. Everybody has. Yeah, yeah. It's about finding connections <laughs> with people, and he uses the most heartwarming clips from the um, from the film, suggesting it's going to be this like quirky, animated, yeah, yeah. uplifting movie about people finding a connection. It's got none of this kind of depressive <laughs> middle-aged man trying to siphon emotion out of previous connections. Mm-hmm. None of this despair whatsoever. Again, it's not surprising despite amazing reviews that the film didn't land with a major audience because it's not what it was being sold as. Um, I can understand, you know, Paramount's marketing department trying to sell it as positively as possible. And Kaufman says in some recent interviews, he's the failure of this movie's made him reassess um, his position in the marketplace because previously, you know, he could go to a Sony and not, he says, you know, not Sony classics, not some little subdivision. Mm. He could go to Sony and make a film with Sony. Yeah. Um, but these days, it's basically, well, what would the trailer be like? How can we market it? If we can't make a funny trailer out of it, we can't make the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the business, isn't it? It's kind of, that's what it's become. Have you seen any, you know, I haven't seen these myself, but like Svank Meyer or yeah. Cray Brothers, is it? Yeah, but they're all about... Are they all sort of more surreal? Yeah, absolutely surreal. They're all, they're all about kind of creating strange dream worlds, which, mm-hmm. which are nothing nothing like reality. I'd say only, you know, only the absolute strangest part of this, the dream sequence in, in Anomalisa, would compare to their work. Yeah, I see. And theirs is all very, very organic as well. It's all about, you know, there's not a great deal of texture in this film because of the setting. Uh, I mean, overt texture, like, you know, and the Frank Meyer and the Quay Brothers is, is all, um, you know, rotting wood and oh, see, yeah. stone textures and fabrics yeah. and that sort of thing. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the film itself, I think it's... You know, it's, it's right up there with Kaufman's other movies, and I think the animation's given it a, a, another element that that makes it even more fascinating. I think it's a terrific film, um, and I'm actually sometimes when you have to watch a film again and then watch it a third time, making notes and then do background research, it tends to kind of dry it out a little. Yeah, yeah. In this case, you know, it's just refreshed it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I was watching it the third time with pen and paper and just still still spellbound. But that is all always kind of going to be slightly tempered by the fact that I'm very, very disappointed that it didn't reach the audience that it deserved. I think it, I think everyone who's seen a Charlie Kaufman movie ever should have seen this. You know, all that wider audience... <laughs> no, all that wider yeah, audience yeah, no, that he it, reached yeah. with his other movies, he mm. should have reached with this. Mm. And everyone who's been to see a Wes Anderson animated movie because it's quirky and fun and the animation's terrific should also have seen this for the same crossover reason. Yeah, exactly. You know, for me, when I look at Anomalisa, I'm in awe of the craftsmanship. I mean, it, it really is a staggering accomplishment. And like making the everyday world beautiful somehow in its setting. I, I, I love that detail. Yeah, and it's the very everyday world. It's deliberately mm. the drabbest setting you can imagine. Yeah, the Fragile Hotel. Yeah. yeah, and it makes it seem wonderful. But also, like, it's really funny. You know, there's, uh, it's not like a, a gag a minute, but, you know, you're kind of giggling all the way through it, you know, mm. at either the visual jokes or at the dialogue. But, you know, also watching it as a kind of middle-aged man who maybe looks away a little bit from the abyss, you know, instead of facing the uh, existential crisis. I like it that a film is able to be exquisite and funny and also look at 
depression and these other things and kind of get away with doing all of it you know it's a it's a, mm. a, a stunning accomplishment i think to kind of tick all those boxes and then the boxes that shouldn't even be together you know it's it's really clever mm.